Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft, career and what matters to them. In this episode, we traverse the stages of writer, performer and funny man, Mr Phil Scott. Phil Scott has many strings on his long bow. Actor, writer, pianist, singer, composer, reviewer and broadcaster. Adept across several mediums, he has ensured that anyone who is present in his audience is guaranteed several smiles, much guffaw and rapt awe at his rapier wit and keyboard dexterity. He was a pivotal member of the annual STC Wharf Review for 18 years, demonstrating how satire deftly allows a community to examine itself. The titles alone conjure the sort of treat to be devoured. Free Petrol, Sunday in Iraq with George, Much Review About Nothing and Pennies from Kevin. He also wrote and performed for several ABC television series. These include Good News Week, Three Men and a Baby Grand and The Gillies Report. Extending his writing to the narrative form, he has had four comic novels published in Australia and the US, with such fabulous titles as One Dead Diva, It's About Your Friend, Gay Resort Murder Shock and Mardi Gras Murders. He is a cabaret veteran, having first explored the form in 1983 with his solo show A Legend in His Own Mind. He has appeared at venues around Australia and has been a regular at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Most recently, he performed a one-man show about the English songwriter Lionel Bart titled Reviewing the Situation and the biographical work Mario about the life and music of Mario Lanza. His talents have been present in the evolution of a significant number of cabaret performances as co-creator. The Twink and the Showgirl, Pop Princess, Newly Discovered, Gentlemen Prefer Blokes, Fat Swan, Little Orphan Trashley, Diamonds Are for Trevor and Liza's Back is Broken. Oh, and he's written a couple of musicals as well. Next up is a season of his new show with Jonathan Biggins, No Cabaret for Old Men. It will feature as one of the highlights of the 2019 Sydney International Cabaret Festival in July. Phil talks cabaret and much more in this delightful episode of Stages. The lines are doodle, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. Hmm. Oh, it, do I have to um, sign off a like a... Away thing then. saying that it's yes, it's all well, kosher. It depends on how slanderous it is. Oh dear, do all you, right. Do you plan to spill any beans? No, I don't think so. Well, I think we'll be right. All right, <laughs> just we'll just converse, and what comes up comes up. And if there's any danger areas, oh, have you got a visual cue for me? Um, no, back back off, something just, like that. No, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll reevaluate at the end, and, and then we can can delete. Oh, okay. Um, now. I want to start with you're a very funny man. I mean, we, we, we've just got an inkling of it then. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you're going to get at these prices. <laughs> Can I ask, who are your comic heroes? Oh, okay. Well, there were two when I was uh, a boy. Um, Tom Lehrer, the American songwriter who wrote Vatican Rag. Um, oh, you know, um, Poisoning Pigeons, poisoning in, pigeons the in the Park. And all that sort of very kind of um, dark humour. Um, the um, didn't he do the um, all of the chemical elements to I am the very modern of a modern ma- yes the model of a modern major. Do you general. want me to do it now? Can you do it? Do yeah, it. just do us a snatch. Okay. <clears throat> There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and I am an original blue. But all right, I'll have, very good. <laughs> have I, another yeah, mouth. I will. Well, I have to be you know rehearsed up for that. <laughs> um, but I, I I used to do it. So did you learn that as a kid? 
Yeah, but not in time for my science exam at the HSC, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> would have been the perfect way to remember yeah. them. When I say there were two, actually, there were much more than that now that I think, because I was a big Goons fan. Right. Um, the other one I was going to say was Barry Humphreys. I was always very keen on him. Um, and I still am, goddammit. <laughs> He's coming back and doing another tour. I know. He That's said he was retiring. Really. He won't, he won't, he'll drop dead on stage. Yeah. That's all about. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's hard to imagine Dame Edna at age 84 or something, isn't it? Yeah. Is that how old he is? I think I, he's in his a, 80s. He's in his early 80s, yeah. yeah. Um, I think because he likes the Wharf Review so much and used to come and see it and invited us all to dinner one night at his um, apartment that overlooks, um, you know, the, the quay. And there's a beautiful view from his balcony of the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and the Harbour. And then when you turn 180 degrees and face away from it, you see exactly the same view um, painted by Margaret Ollie. Wow, hanging on the wall. Not bad, hey? Um, so the, people say that you probably should never meet your heroes. Did he... He obviously didn't disappoint at all. Oh, no, he's, he's, he's very charming. He likes comedians. He's always has been very um, welcoming to comics and to comic actors. In my, I've I've known about that side of him for a long time. I only met him like quite recently, and we had a long talk about Lionel Bart because I did a cabaret show about Bart called Reviewing the Situation, and Barry, of course, worked in the first production of Oliver. He was Mr. Sowerbury, wasn't he? He was Mr. Sowerbury. Yep, and he was covering Fagan, and Ron Moody never went off. <laughs> so, but it, look, he did get to in that Cameron Macintosh revival. He did get to play. Yes, he got to play it eventually. Yes, yeah. yeah. You've, so, you, you've, you've worked with a lot of comedians, no doubt. It's it's often said that comedians have a dark side. You know, off stage they can be. I mean, you, you think of people like Hancock and all of those. Yeah, um, are, well, are comedians I, I, generally funny off stage, or well, some are and some aren't. Really, I think you know they're all people. Um, Mostly they're not hilarious off stage all the time because, you know, why would you be? Um, because they're just into funny business. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. But one um, a comedian I worked with was Rowan Atkinson and I played keyboards for him. He did a tour of Australia. This is before Mr Bean and all those things, so he was just known as a stand-up comic, really. So he's just out of that. Was he in the Oxford Review, those Oxford... Players that um, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And uh, I don't know. Said, he yeah. might have been. I, the, foot, I, the footlights. Um, yeah. Yeah, Cambridge footlights. Cambridge footlights. Sorry. Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But he was very quiet in real life and very serious about it. And when we'd go to a new city, he would go and sit sit in and look at all the lighting states and be very sort of fussy about a bit more of this, a bit less of that on the day. Even if we weren't doing you know two shows, he was very very um into the detail of it and he he was lovely but he wasn't at all funny he looked funny (laughs) (laughs) so maybe that did it he was very funny on stage yeah yeah. well i guess you know you've got to get the writing the lighting right don't you i mean if you can't see a gag or a facial expression or whatever yes bright for comedy i don't know how many times i have to say that It's true, though, isn't it? Oh, it is. Well, sometimes, I'm not going to mention names, but sometimes with um, the Wharf Review, for example, we've had a lighting person come in who has done artistic lighting with lots of dark places, and you can say goodbye to the laughs instantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
not the script, folks. It obviously was the lighting that went wrong. <laughs> um, a, 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 you, know, you are a, a master at the keyboard and, and wordplay. So I, I, I guess it harks back to someone like Tom Lehrer. Well, yes, he played piano and wrote his music and wrote his very clever lyrics as well. And, um, and, and what about Victor Borg? Were you a fan of him? I was a fan of Victor Borger, yeah. Um, I saw... Who did I see? It might have been Liberace I saw live. Maybe it wasn't Victor Borger. Um, <laughs> They're very similar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not? No. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about a long time ago. Um, yeah. Wordplay. I mean, I was very fond of Danny Kaye's work as well in his films, and he always used to do that very fast patter stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Gilbert and Sullivan. I've just always liked people who talk fast, I think. Yeah. Um, so how do you approach writing a joke like that? Oh, a joke? Yeah, well, well sorry, or a, 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 um, a, a stream of consciousness, well, you know, the, the word play, the, you know, the, the, a, a patter song, is that, the, is that the correct term? I'm well, a patter song. The term that when, yeah. you've got it, when you've got to squeeze a lot of content into a, a minimum number of phrases. Yes, that's a good question. Obviously, your your, I mean, you, your you, lexicon, your vocabulary has to be quite broad, oh, so that you have access to those <laughs> words. Oh, I suppose so. Um, I like rhymes. I like things that scan properly. So it doesn't matter what kind of song it is, really. I, I like that to happen. Um, and a song has to have. You have to go on a journey with a lyric of some sort. Sometimes, the um, for example, uh, I don't know. Um, Comedy Tonight, let's take that from Forum. Yep. Sondheim, another huge, you know... Um, We're playing. ...person who I'm keen on. So Comedy Tonight, the idea is set up right at the beginning and then there are variations of it. But with some songs, for example, If Ever I Would Leave You, you don't get the point of it till the very end. And so it's all sort of build up to the thing as well, I wouldn't leave you at all in summer, spring or any other time. You know, it goes through all that. So there has to be some kind of arc like that. And once you've got your subject matter and you know really what you want to say and what order you want to say it in, and the hardest ones are list songs, I think, because you're going over the same ground over and over again. You're not telling a story. You're just elaborating on an idea. And they're the hard ones to build in a kind of climax to, I find. Um, it's all very technical. I, I can imagine. And you've got to, under, you've got to have an awareness of the structure of, of a song and, and, as you say, its arc. But those list songs, uh, is it Gilbert and Sullivan? Is that the first time that we start to see list songs as such? You know, with well, the most obvious, yes. I have you a know, little list. I have a little list, and oh, when I was a lad, and you know, all those things yeah. where it just goes on and on, and he tells a story, and um, yeah. But obviously, you, you've saturated yourself in all of that those styles throughout your life to inform you and give you the. Well, I seem to the have, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't set out to do that. But no, that's no, what no, but, but you've been a sponge and you've absorbed all of that, those influences to yeah. come up with your own style. And now they're so long ago in the past that I can just write them exactly <laughs> and no one knows. <laughs> Where did you grow up, Phil? Are you a Sydney boy? Yes, I was born in Sydney. I grew up on the lower North Shore, in Clontarf and Balgala. Um, which is a really boring part of Sydney. There's not even a pub there. Well, I've made up for that since. Um, do, do you return there at all? Well, I have no reason to now. My parents have passed on and my brother doesn't live there anymore. And, you know, so no. 
Yeah. Mm. Right. But I did, you know, while they were alive. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. Uh, what sort of child were you? Were you, were you the class clown? Uh, yes. I'm. Well, particularly when I got to high school, uh, I was liable to be bullied because I was, you know, terrible at sport and I was a bit, you know, pudgy and everything. So I made people laugh. I did it even before that. It, it's a kind of a... It helps. It's a it's a thing to um, protect yourself. Yeah, it's a protective absolutely. thing, yeah. uh, and you know it's kind of fun to get a laugh out of somebody. You know, it's worthwhile, whether it be students or teachers. Yes, in fact, when I was in uh, form, I don't know what they call it now. It was fifth class, whatever that is. Must be form five. Yeah, six, Year seven, eight. No, or are you talking about no, primary, school? primary school? Yeah, now. grade five. Yeah, we we all went on a, a few excursions during the year to a chocolate factory and to some other thing. <clears throat> and I wrote a little book about it. I used to draw as well, so I wrote this like cartoons of all the teachers and all the pupils who went on it, and what happened to all these terrible things that happened to them and falling in vats of chocolate and all the rest of it. Yes, move over, Roll Dahl. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, I showed it to a few kids and they thought it was hilarious and one of them said, oh, can I show it to my friend? And I let him take it, which was pretty stupid, and it went straight to the headmaster, Mr W.D. Piper, and who was this huge man with an enormous red head like a tomato. And, you know, he used to use the cane in those days. Yeah, and, of course. And, all that. and I was called to his office and he sat me down and he said, threw this thing down in front of me, he said, are you responsible for this? And I said, um, yes, Mr. Piper, I am. And he said, oh, well, tell the other fellows I was wild with you. There, take it, and don't do it again. <laughs> and he had this big grin on his face. So they obviously liked it too. Extraordinary. So it was a recognised talent then. Well, look, satire anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I knew the meaning of satire. When did you first learn the piano? Uh, when I was a kid. There was a woman in Manly named Mrs. Chalmers. Mrs. Chalmers, dear, dear, there's the, there's the R. And she was a pupil of a Rubinstein. <laughs> this Viennese woman or something. Yeah. And she, uh, she taught, and she was very good. But I was lazy. I never practised. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah, but I used to play a lot of, you know, show tunes and stuff by ear. And then when I got back to my, you know, Bach and Beethoven and everything for her, I only progressed like three bars or something because I hadn't actually done any work on it. So did you go through all the exams and achieve that? Uh, most of them, yeah. Right. I don't think I've got the last one. Right. But, um... but I didn't want to be a concert pianist. I love classical music. It's all I listen to now. But I don't. I didn't want to be a concert pianist. I didn't want to play stuff that people knew really well. <laughs> could say, ah, there we are. There was a slip. <laughs> didn't want that. Um, yes, you do love classical music. I'm, I'm aware that you're a great fan. Where did that appreciation start? Well, I didn't start with the piano lessons, strangely enough. And where did I get that from? I think from school. You know, we we were made to listen to it when I was at school. It doesn't happen now, I'm no, sure. No, no. And... Well, I shouldn't say no. I'm sure there are schools, some schools. Oh, I, mean, I suppose there are some, yes. but no, it was part of the idea was to, you know, make you a cultured person. Mm. Didn't work with like 99% of the people I went to school with. <laughs> <laughs> Made no impression whatsoever. But uh, we used to sit on the veranda and be played, I don't know, the Carnival of the Animals or the Sorcerer's Apprentice or those pieces that kids kind of can relate to for some reason. And I just got into it. 
and then I started buying records and listening to it at home. Yeah, obviously some sort of connection that fed your soul and... Yeah, and then I studied music at Sydney University. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. So what did that involve? Uh, Largely well, classical or...? Oh, yes, all classical. All, all forms? No, 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 no popular music. Right. Again. So, but, so was it like a conservatorium course or something? Uh, well, um, it was musicological, I guess. Right. So we, when we studied some um, Balinese music and Japanese and things like that. The Just court, to see the influences. The gagaku, the court music and so on. Yep. Um, Peter Sculthorpe was one of the teachers and was my um, thesis supervisor. And um, so was uh, Ross Edwards. Yep. So, you know, quite good people. And um, did, you, did you study composition there? Because you, of course, composed no, a lot. No, I could have done composition, but for some reason I did musicology instead. Um, and I wish I had done composition now, but, you know, it was one subject, and I was studying English and other things. So the Scott household, was it an artistic household? Did, did oh, terribly. Terribly? We soirees constantly. You sat around in smoking jackets. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I Dad passed the cigars around. <laughs> well, no, the, the thing behind that is, it's a very long story. You no, might I love it. We've got plenty of time. Oh, okay. Um my uh, father was an accountant, but he went to work for the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust and then, after that, for J.C. Williamson's, who did all the musicals in Australia in those days. And he was in administration in those things. See, that's why these conversations on stages are so important. Who would have known that about you, that um, you've got a connection to the firm? No, exactly. Yeah. Well, I did, yeah. indeed. In fact, for Fiddler on the Roof, the first season, I dressed up as Tevia with a fake fiddle and sat on the um, the balcony, not even a balcony, you know, there's just the, the roof of the old Theatre Royal at lunchtime and pretended to play the violin while they played the soundtrack, you know, the original cast album. Yeah. So for the lunch, people going past might go and buy a ticket. And, of course, earlier on before the mic came on, we were talking about the original Fiddler on the Roof, Rod Dunbar. Oh, yes, well, Roddy was, was in that. that. Yeah. He was in that show. He was the fiddler, yeah. Yeah, and Hayes Gordon was uh, Tevia. Um, yes. So, I mean, I, when Dad started to work for Williamson's, I met all those people. And when I was, I was around about 15 when he did that, because he was with the, he was also with the Australian Ballet before that. He was the administrator. So I met Robert Helpman and all those sort of people when I was a kid. Um, but uh, when, he, when he went to Williamson's, I saw Promises, Promises about 16 times. Because I'd wag school on a Wednesday afternoon instead of doing sport, and Dad would give me a ticket to go and see the matinee. What an education. Fabulous. Who was in Promises, Promises? Miss uh, Hayes was, wasn't she? Nancy Hayes? Nancy Hayes, I remember very well, yeah. because she wore this big sort of fur coat. And, you know, she's got quite big eyes. And someone said, what's the coat made out of? And she said, owl. <laughs> and her eyes opened as far as they possibly could. <laughs> it's owl. Who else was in I it? I guess it was an imported cast, was it? At that stage, um, the or? two leads were. Right. The guy, oh, what was his name? Um, it'll come to me. He turned up in the film years later of being John Malkovich. Well, I hadn't seen him for, you know, decades before that. Um, Orson Bean? Orson Bean. There you go. That's him, yeah. I don't know where I pulled that from. I knew it wasn't Wells, but anyway. No, Mr Bean. <laughs> Mr Orson Bean. Yes, he was a bit naughty, I seem to recall. He got a bit bored and he'd oh. s stand there next to the, the pros arch and in the, while someone else was talking, he'd find a 
bit of dust or something and do that and b- brush his hand away and do a bit of kind of shtick that's it's, it's put, extraordinary behavior isn't it? drew attention to him well you hear those stories of streisand who was doing um funny girl in london with michael craig yes indeedy who in the middle of a duet you, know, you are a woman i am man she'd get bored and she'd just walk off yes let him go on <laughs> You've heard those stories? I have. Yeah. Well, apparently she was very impressed by royalty and, the, you know, uh, people with titles. So if he had friends in and he wanted her to stay on stage and do a good performance, he'd tell her that Lord and Lady so-and-so were in and then she'd, so she'd, stay. she'd get excited. Yeah. Dear. Naughty babs. Naughty babs. <laughs> uh, what about Mum? Was she in the business at all or did she sing? No. Um, play the piano? My, um, her sister, my auntie, played piano quite well. And when I was a little kid, she'd sit me on her lap and put my hands on top of hers while she played and all that, so I kind of got a bit of sense of being at the keyboard, I guess. Yeah. Um, Mum, I think, had had lessons, but she wasn't any good at it. Mm. But well, they, they weren't particularly musical people. They liked music, but, you know, I don't know where my brother and I got our chops from, really. So what did your brother do? Oh, well, Craig, who's my brother, yep. he's uh, a jazz bass player and he's the head of the jazz course at the Conservatorium. Right, so there's two musical sons. Yeah, oh, and he's played with all sorts of people. He played with Blossom Deary and he played with um, uh, Joe Henderson and all sorts of like jazz greats. And, of course, a lot with um, da, 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 um, James Morrison. Do you think the listeners can hear our eyes? Chattering in the glass? It's snowing outside, folks. <laughs> and hell here, it's warm. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. Cheers. Oh, you didn't know any of that stuff, I guess. I didn't know any of it, and that's why. And I tell you, know. you who my godmother was, or she said she was, she wasn't really, but she said she was, was this wonderful woman named Beryl Cheers. Do you remember her? No, but, but uh, people have spoken about Beryl Cheers. Beryl was wonderful. She was quite fat. She was, she was in the ensemble of um, a, a chorus lady of a lot of shows. Yeah, she, she was in yeah. Sound of Music. She yeah. was a nun in that. Um, she had a wonderful mezzo-soprano voice and huge, a really big voice. And I've got a recording somewhere of her singing As Long As He Needs Me with me playing for her when I was about 12. And, you know, I had a little home reel-to-reel tape recorder in those days. And I set the mic up on the piano, you know, so the piano's right there. She had to go and stand in another room. She had such a big voice. It wow. was just, you know, she was lovely, Beryl. Really good fun. Lovely woman. Yeah. I, I, I interviewed somebody recently. I've done so many interviews uh, recently, I've forgotten who it was, but they spoke about Beryl Cheers as being somebody who took them under their wing and yeah. taught them about, you know, all of that, those unwritten rules of the theatre, which uh, you need to know when you're, you're working in a big show. Yeah, well, I mean, I was very lucky, and I think she may have um, got me my first job at Marion Street as a musical director in the 70s because they were looking for someone, and she I'd only done one thing before that, and she pushed for me, I think. Well, that's a good segue. How, how did you enter the business of show? You entered as a, as a musical director, did you? Yeah, that's what I thought I was going to be, I think. I mean, I did a uni degree, right? Oh. When I came out of university... I worked for a year at what was then 2MBS FM as their program manager, which is now called Fine Music, I think, FM. Right, yep. Um, and, uh, but, and that was fun, and I was pretty good at that, I think, but I actually wanted to 
going to theatre, you know, I really did. And uh, I had done one show, which was The Fantastics, at the Bondi Pavilion Theatre, and it opened the Bondi Pavilion Theatre, The Fantastics. Who was in it, do you remember? Yes, I do. This is how long ago it is. The boy, what's his name, Matt, was John Jarrett, star of Wolf Creek. (laughs) (laughs) Rosalie Howard was the girl. Right. Um, Who else? Who played the fathers? The fathers were David Williams, who actually ran Showcast, and a man named Kevin Manser, who I think was a champion swimmer or something when he was young. I don't know what happened. I think don't know what have happened to him. Right. David Williams died eventually. Um, a man named Phil Jay, who was an old, really genuine old Williamson's chorus boy, but in his sixties then, he played the old actor, and he used to wear full slap all the time. Day and night, not just for the show, but, you know, I bumped into him at the wharf at Manly once he was wearing full slap. He just wore it all the time. <laughs> and I suppose it was a different face to the face that he put on for the stage. Oh, he probably added, yes, he, he added the, the eyeliner and stuff for the stage. And was that all? And um, The narrator. Oh, El Gallo, yes. um, a man named Lionel Long, right. who was a country and western star and was on television used to sing songs with a guitar. Right. He was he was good value. Yeah. I liked them all. Yeah. And the, the man who produced it, whose name I cannot remember for the life of me, but he was a friend of my parents. Um, and he had a musical director named Twiggy. I can't think of his real name. He was this fat Englishman. <laughs> He's called Twiggy. <laughs> yeah. And he was Leray Desmond's MD. Right. And... He was the MD and he needed an assistant MD and I came on board as that. But then he had a big fight with Brian Siren, Brian Siren, the director, and he left. And suddenly I got the job as MD in, during rehearsals. And it was originally we were going to have two pianos. And the producer said to me, David Tobin, his name was, he said, um, do you know another pianist? And I said, look, I... I think it'd be better if I brought my brother in. He can play bass and he can play a bit of percussion. And, you know, we don't really need two pianos. Two pianos is too heavy for this score. And so he said, all right, then sure. So Craig came in and we I arranged it very quickly and we did that. And it seemed to work. And, you know, Gough Whitlam came and opened the theatre. Enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Siren was um, an Australian, uh, Indigenous Australian, in fact, um, director, who's been, you know, n- not with us for quite a long time. But he'd, he'd worked a lot in New York, and he was very arch. And if something, he didn't like something in rehearsals, he'd say, stop, stop, sorry, Mary, boring. <laughs> <laughs> Mary could be anyone, you know, it didn't yes. have to be a woman. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I, you know, I love hearing, I think I have heard his name vaguely in the past or whatever but of course there's Noel Tovey as well these um, indigenous oh, Noel boys would know him. who've gone to yeah, yeah, Noel New York and, and Brian for sure. had a big career in musical theatre yeah yeah yes Noel's got an extraordinary story he must yeah he'd him. be great to chat to yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of your uh, career has been well it's the necessity of theatre I guess about collaborating you know working with with other folks yeah I prefer to collaborate I don't like to work on my own so what are the challenges in collaborating uh, the biggest challenge I've found, and it's, it always is, no matter who it is, no matter how friendly you are, is that you have to be sure you're, you're both on the same page absolutely on the, in terms of the project. And 
how many times do you get halfway through something and you realise that the other person's vision of it is nothing like how you see it? And at that point, it's very, very hard to, to try and glue that back together. And I've been in that position, you know, a few times. And the piece suffers. That's what happens, you know, because everyone's compromising and suddenly it's not strong anymore because it, it, it's, it's, too, it's making too many compromises. So I think that's the main thing about, about collaborating. You've just, and I believe Sondheim says the same thing, you've just got to talk it through endlessly before you put one word down, Right. I think. Just, Have you heard that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that you are all on that. You're same all on the page. same page. Yeah, it's so important. What about when you write a gag, and it's just not firing? Is it difficult to let go of that gag? Are you quite happy to kill your babies, or are you determined to sort of stick with it through through a season or whatever to to refine it and try? I don't know if you're really fond of it. <laughs> if you, it's not working. You'll you'll try everything to make it work. But I'm not, I'm not um, precious about material. When I was working on the Gillies report with John Clark, um, you know, I was, I hadn't done a lot of writing at that point, and I was very fond of something or other I'd done, and it had to go. And I was, you know, grumpy about it or something. And he said, um, "Are you, uh, um, what is it? Are you a genius or an amateur?" And I said, well, I, I, neither of those things. He said, good, because they're the only people who won't let go of their work. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, you've got a point. Great way to make a point, yeah. i tell you what, writing for television is a great way to learn how to write anything because you just have to. Because you've you, got a certain time frame. Yeah, you've you got to, to, you know, and, and if it stretches out, something's got to go, no matter, you know, it might be a part that you really like, but even so... Something's got to go. It yeah. just cannot last any longer. So that's a very good, um, you know, discipline. So in that show, you were writing specifically for Gillies, uh, or a, or a team of performers. A team of performers. Yeah. Oh well, we're we're getting ahead of ourselves in chron- chronologically. Oh, but, oh no, we're, we're going to jump back and forward. Oh, okay. Um, All right. So, because I, I know that you've written for specific talents, Bit Midler being one of them, or provided material for them. Am I right? Correct in that? When she was in concert in Australia. Oh, no, I didn't do that. Didn't you? No. <laughs> Cut that bit. <laughs> but you have written for specific performers, haven't you? Well, I do all the time. Uh, uh, yeah. In the Wharf Review. Is it difficult to, to tailor a joke for a particular talent? This question's probably going nowhere. Oh, no, no. I write for Trevor Ashley, for example. Yeah, all the time. okay, yeah. okay. So, but you, you you've obviously have a great affinity with Trevor. You know him very well. You know how he works. But, yeah, I know how his mind works as well. I mean, his, his comic mind, yeah. I mean. Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, I think, yes, you really... Some people can write for anyone, but I think, it, you know, ideally you, you want to understand their, them pretty well, I think. You know what I'm getting mixed up with? I know that you um, wrote some of the material for the book of Priscilla. I did. In New York, and which they, Midler produced. Yes, That's the I do have a connection with Beth Midler. <laughs> well, I have a, a, a sort of six degrees connection because Ted Robinson, who's this... You, you ought to talk to him too. He's brilliant. He's the comedy producer of TV. Comedy producer of TV. He's kind of retired now. But um, he and Bob Hudson wrote um, material for 
incoming overseas acts for ages. It was one of the things they did. Yeah. Streisand was one of them. Right. And Ted said he had a meeting with Streisand's people and they sat down and this man actually said, I have to tell you that Miss Streisand does not do self-defecating material. <laughs> self-defecating. Yes. Doesn't shit on herself, in other words. <laughs> she will do self-deprecating, but she won't defecate in herself. Ted Robinson particularly uh, wrote a lot of material for Bette Midler and he worked on the film of Divine Madness that she made in America. And they're quite good friends. So when I went to New York and she, I had to meet her because she was the main producer and I was one of the writers, I said, oh, we have a friend in common, Ted Robinson. And she said, why didn't you bring him? <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think was a denigrating my work. No, no, no. no. Or defecating it. Um, is it was that difficult um, to appreciate that American sensibility in, so I guess you were like translating the jokes for an American audience? Well, you? a lot of it had been done already because they'd opened in Toronto. Right. And um, Dean Bryant was, you know, a resident director on it and he's a writer, of course. Right. And he'd, I think, done quite a bit of work on it. Uh, and it got to... It got to New York, at which point I came in. It was in previews already, but they said, come in for the last minute, you know, um, finessing. In case you spot something. In case I spot A moment. Something. Yeah. yeah. But when I got to meet Bed Middler, I'd only seen Act One. I got there that day, you know. We had the meeting at that uh, interval. And uh, what they had done, and I'd, I'd worked you know, via email, um, they'd replaced Kylie with Madonna, as a Felicia's, you know, icon yes. that she loves because people didn't know who Kylie was in America, they said. So I'd wrote this joke about Madonna. I've told you this, I'm sure. No, no. I wrote this joke about Madonna. Um, Felicia says, Madonna's an icon. And Sheldy's character says, so's Mount Rushmore. But Mount Rushmore's a better actor. <laughs> Which is... Character comedy, yeah. because he's having a go at this other guy. You know, that's what it's about. It's not really about Madonna. Yeah. It's about that. Um, and so we had this meeting, and um, the first thing Bette Midler said was, um, the Mount Rushmore gag, I'm not so sure about that. What do you think of it to me? And nobody else, not a peep out of anyone else. And I said, well, well I think it's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> Which was good because she got the big Bette Midler smile on then. That was so nice. Did she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But after the Australians went, she got um, Bruce Valanche or someone to rewrite quite a lot of it. Right. Oh. They didn't want us there, you know. Um, I don't mean us. I don't mean the no. creatives. But the Americans didn't want an Australian show to come in and and you know kill it. Basically, right. they had the shits with the English for doing it when Lloyd Webber and, and oh, yes. Cameron McIntosh yes. brought that, all that. their stuff over and they didn't want it to happen with some other country. So uh, that's that's my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, that's unfortunate. Well, when you look at the Tonys that year, Sheldon was up for a Tony Award, and rightly so. And um, yes. and they did this number and it was all about, um, oh, you know, uh, the, the, the late show MD, Paul... Schaefer, yes. who wrote one of the songs that we used in the show. So he was in the middle of the stage. Sheldon was way over there somewhere, as, you know, with a bunch of other people. It was appalling, really. Yeah. 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 It's Raining Men, was it? Is what he wrote? Uh, no, um, Colour My World, I Colour think it might have been. Right. Yeah. It's a great song. I'm uh, not taking it away from him. No, no. But, you know, it was all about, let's make it about us, not about them. Mm, 
which was interesting. Interesting. Anyway, so story from New York. So <laughs> I was there. And the big show was Book of Mormon that year that opened. You couldn't get in. And I kept saying, and um, my partner Michael came over and he was, you know, we were going to some shows other than Priscilla. And we wanted to see that. And the Priscilla people kept saying, oh, yeah, we can get you a ticket. We can get you a ticket. No, not tonight. No, not tonight. Night after night. Finally, we had one night left, a Saturday night. And they said, no, we just can't get it. Sorry. All our connections uh, are are, dead ends. Yep. So I said to Michael, oh, why don't we just go and see a play or any bloody thing? doesn't matter. So we rocked up to this play called um, Real People, Something People, um, starring uh, Francis McDormand. Not bad. Not bad. Two-time Oscar winner. Indeedy. And she was wonderful. She was absolutely wonderful. Uh, And it was Interval. And Jackie Weaver and her partner, Sean, were there for some reason. And she just missed out on the uh, Oscar for Animal Kingdom. Yes. But she'd been nominated. And so we were chatting to them at Interval. And this man came up and tapped her on the the shoulder and said, Excuse me, I'm Josh Brolin. Uh, welcome to the Academy Nominees Who Never Made It Club. <laughs> <laughs> they love her in Hollywood. They that, that, just love it's her. It's fantastic. It's that great, she's isn't had it? That, that uh, huge rebirth to her career, and she's in everything. She's just, uh, you know, co-starring, equal billing with Diane Keaton. I know, isn't it brilliant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course. I mean, she's totally up to it. Why shouldn't she? I love how we keep getting back to Streisand. Oh, do we? Josh, Josh Brolin is there. Oh, Josh Brolin is, yeah, James Brolin's son. son. Uh, stepson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just had a holiday in Bali with Trevor Ashley and Vincent Hooper. Oh, talk of Barbara Stride. <laughs> yes. Well, it was a lovely place. I've never seen anything like it. It was beautiful, and we got it for nothing as a gift because Trevor did a gig for the people who owned the place. Right. But they had this huge sound system. We had 24-7 Streisand. Midler and show tunes. Well, the Midler and show tunes can't get enough. I really never want to hear Barbara Streisand sing another song. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I, I can't say that in this podcast. No, You'll have to cut I'll that. I'll have to cut that out. Um, <laughs> now, look, I tend to agree. Look, she, it's an extraordinary instrument that she has. But oh, it is. After two songs, it, it does sound a bit... Yes. Uh, you well, need, she you does need the same break. thing. She starts soft and she ends loud. And I don't think she's really good with a lyric. I'm sorry. Mm. I think she's interested in some other things other than the lyric. Well, good. If we just whisper that, yeah, then maybe, yeah. maybe nobody will really take it. I mean, Beth Midler's supposed to be this, you know, daffy, silly woman, but she's actually spot on with what do these words mean and what can I get out of them. You know, if she was just reading the words, it'll work. You know what I mean? Yep, absolutely. Mm, anyway, okay, good. Can you go too far with the joke? Have you ever gotten into trouble because you've just... Oh, Shouldn't have said that or Oh, I don't know. That. Well, we've had a few hairy moments in the review over 18 years, as you can imagine. But we made Gary Scale do them. <laughs> he played the stingray just... that killed Steve Irwin, you know, like two weeks later. Oh, OK. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have to do it. I, we read that Jonathan and I were looking at old um, scripts for our new cabaret show to see if there was anything we could put in. And um, we came across that one and oh, I thought, how could we do that? It's terrible. I mean, terrible jokes about Peter Brock riding his car into a tree. And oh, yes, I saw that. Oh, anyway. Did they get laughs? Yeah, we oh. laughed. 
<laughs> well, that's the thing, I guess. Um, uh, th- th- that extremely black humour, I suppose, provides a way, a coping mechanism for people, doesn't it? Um, humour can be a great oh, shield I th- to grief. I think humour's underrated, yeah. let me say that. Yeah. Because um, you can also get a message across if you make people laugh much easier than if you wag your finger in their face, as I'm finding on Facebook. <laughs> I, I always try to be funny. You know, yeah. I think there's no reason why you can't have a laugh while you're discussing something serious. Absolutely. Are you talking I, about social media and Facebook? Do you get into trouble because people... Because, because you can't really recognise tone. That's the trouble with it, on, yeah. On, on. Well, I mean, we can talk about that. I mean, I, I go over the top sometimes on Facebook. Um, I get quite angry about things, you know. I'm you know, getting on. Naturally, I'm an angry old bloke. <laughs> Can't you tell? <laughs> no, not really, not really. But your new cabaret show is called No Cabaret, no cabaret for, for Old, old Men. Men. Yes. yes, we just thought that was a funny title. Yeah, no, it's, it's fabulous, it's fabulous. And I think, you know, we kept all of these synchronicity. Josh Brolin was in that, I think. No Country for Old Men. Yes, he was, yeah. 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 <laughs> it all, yes, it's this tiny bubble that I live in, yes. Um, tell me about writing musicals because you've composed a couple in Safety and Numbers and The Republic of Myopia um, and Monkey Bar Productions, Pearly in the Park and Josephine Wants to Dance. How do you write for specific characters and, and a, a specific narrative? Oh, okay. Well, they're all different, all those things that you mentioned. Let's talk about the Monkey Bar shows. The, um, the Monkey Bar people, so that's um, Eva de Cesare, Sandy Eldridge and up until recently Tim McGarry, they would adapt a kid's book and they would write the script and they'd make suggestions of where songs could go and what they could say. So that's giving you a very specific brief. And then I would sometimes say, oh, I think we actually don't need that there, but we need a song for this character here, maybe. But generally they're spot on. And so you just kind of follow the, the template that you've been given. Yeah. And I, uh, I try to f- find some kind of, in those shows, I try and find some kind of musical uh, equivalent of what the characters like as a, their characteristics. Uh, so if they're, you know, big and brassy, it's going to be... Vuvum, you know, gypsy. So, <laughs> stylistically, you're going to have stylistically, a, a tune yeah. that marries yeah. the personality. But, like, for instance, in Josephine Wants to Dance, her Josephine's brother, Joey, who says, you can't dance, you can't, kangaroos can't dance, stop it, you know, this is not what we do. He's very kind of blokey and down-to-earth and everything, so we gave him a rap. I said, let's do a rap. I'd never written a rap number before, but it's actually quite good fun. Um, and... Well, I guess it's like a list song, really, or those the wordplay songs that we were talking about at the yeah, start. Yeah, well, Tom, there are a lot of Lira there are a lot of words in it, um, and it's it's the way to write a rap song is to write the words first and then write the music. Right. But you can do just about anything you like with the music. You know, you can put all sorts of harmonies in it and lines and everything because it's actually just a bed, as long as the 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 words fit, you know, fit over the top of it. You don't have to. The hardest thing to write, I think, are pastiche songs like show songs or, you know, jazz pop hits from the past where there's a real narrative arc in it and the really good songwriters like Cole Porter or Frank Lesser or those people 
the the music supports the idea. So if an idea is being worked out and then you know the the result of that working out is stated, the music is uh, has to be come to a sort of you know a, a cadence at that point, so that the harmony reflects the the the, the um, tension of the harmony, and then the release of that tension reflects the uh, build up of the idea and the release of that idea at the same time. Yeah. And people who write their own music and lyrics, like Sondheim and Porter and Lesser, are really really good at it because they conceive the whole thing as one, and they're very hard to copy. Whereas rap and some other styles and rock Lloyd, and Lloyd Webber. Oh well, Lloyd Webber. Yeah, I don't know. Well, there's that there's sort of very that Puccini-esque operatic. Yeah, I guess you just go to Puccini floral. and find something and yeah. put that in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, mind you, I'm I'm not I don't hate Lloyd Webber by any means. No, I think no, no, no. Evita no, is a fabulous score. Yeah, yeah, I can't, absolutely. you know, I I'm and superstar, of course. Yeah, yeah, I can't. But Evita's my favourite. I just cannot get over how many good numbers there are in that yeah. and how exciting it is and everything musically. Do you have a favourite song? Nope. No? Eclectic tastes. Well, from what, um, in what area do I have a favourite? Got... Well, I don't know. Is there just a song which, which you really admire and which perhaps means something? I suppose it's a silly question. <laughs> no, it's not a silly question. It's not a silly question, um, no. It's, um, I, I suppose music means different things to us, doesn't it, for, for different reasons, whether it be yeah. sentiment or we appreciate the, the structure or the wordplay or takes us to a particular moment in our history or yes i don't know i think um is that all there is the peggy lee song yeah which is written by libra and stoller yeah uh but that musically that's not really very interesting it's not a favorite song of mine because of its music it's just something about the whole thing and the the atmosphere that it creates well some songs are more theatrical too yeah they 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 stir up a particular world or character or or something Mm. um so what about those those Australian musicals that you've written, like Safety in Numbers and The Republic of Myopia, would you like to see them revived? Yes, well, but they both need work. That's the trouble. I okay. mean, I, there's there's book problems with both of them, and usually the wrap up, the end, you know, Act Two. It's always Act Two. But um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting. Safety in Numbers. I just started writing with a friend in London when I was there in '79, so a long time ago, and. Then he, I think, came back to Australia, and I was, and I did too. But we didn't see each other that much, and so I finished it um, without telling him. And then I took it to the Q Theatre to um, Doreen Warburton, and they decided to do it, which was fabulous. I'd just done Privates on Parade for them the year before. Yeah. Um, fabulous production. Fabulous. We toured, dear. We toured to Tasmania. <laughs> you went to Tasmania. <laughs> yes. No. And the queue decided to do Safety in Numbers, which was terrific. And we um, auditioned Simon Burke, um, who hadn't done a musical at that stage, but he was a big name because he'd done Devil's Playground as a kid. And he was now 20. Uh, (coughs) So that was his first musical? Yeah. He's gone on to conquer the world. Oh, he has. It was pre-Les Mis. Yeah which was his first really big one. But then recently he's done The Sound of Music in the West End. and Oh, he's done a ton of things since, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's going to do the Wharf Review this year. Great. Hmm. Uh, And then Robin Arthur, who uh, 
was a friend of mine already. I've known Robbie forever. But she'd only done chorus before that, in Evita and all sorts of fantastic shows. Um, so that was her first solo gig, really, character gig. Marriott Rupps, who had been one of the Evitas, so she had more experience. And Frank Garfield, who you know, of course. Indeed, Frank. Yeah. Frank, who'd had more experience as well on stage than those two uh, at that point. But really good foursome. And uh, I played piano. It was just piano. And I remember Terry Clark and Nick Enright came to see it and they thought it was wonderful. I was very chuffed. Yeah. Mm. Having written a few musicals They'd know. of their own. Yeah. yeah. I thought, oh, God, are they in? Oh, dear, I'd better avoid them afterwards. But they found me and said, oh, we really liked it. We liked it very much. I'm going to jump back now. Um, you left, finished university and you emptied the Fantastics and then went to Marion Street, I think. Is that right? I then went to Marion Street. Um, The two big things I did in that era um, were a show called Tarantara, Tarantara. At the queue? No. No? No, no, there was one before. There was one at the the queue, which Jonathan was in. Jonathan Biggins? Yes. I never saw it. As was Jack. Oh, Jack Jack was too, yes, that's right. Uh, It was at Marion Street... And, but it toured all over the place. We went to Melbourne, Adelaide, um, Brisbane, I think, uh, Perth, so we, and Hobart. So we did a huge tour. So that was fantastic. And a very good friend of mine, Ted Craig, directed it, who's an Australian director, but he's been in London now for nearly 35 years or something. But I still see him when we can. Uh, and it starred John Ewing and John Hannon, who was lovely. I was very good friends with both of them. John Ewing was, you know, a handful, but still. (laughs) All great talents are. Mm. I remember we were rehearsing, and this is the 70s now we're talking about, and I came into rehearsal, I was the MD, and I was wearing a red and white checked seersucker shirt (laughs) and bright red corduroy jeans. Oh, dear. And John took one look at me and said, what have you come as, a French restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) anyway and uh rosalie howard was in that and so was barbara farrell famous for being mrs marsh on television you know in the ads she had a top c she was a trained soprano Uh, and we had a a really interesting tour and the other big thing that i did was a show at the music loft in manly um uh, called uh what was it called i don't remember the name offhand, but Jill Perryman was in that, and Brian Davies and Daryl Hilton. They were the yep. the three. And that went for something like six months, like every night of the week. There, and in this tiny room where they served a dinner, you know, it was there were tables. It was run by Bill Orr and um, Eric Duckworth, who had put on the Philip Street Reviews, which Jill had done quite a few. Yeah. And John McKellar wrote it, who wrote the Philip Street Review. So there's, there's a connection with Review as well in yeah, the past. Yeah. So when did, when, when did you start writing as a career, adding, adding that string to your bow? Oh, OK. Well, uh, I wasn't doing it then. Uh, no, no, of course. So you're ending <clears throat> for a while. Oh, mm. Music was your career, but then all of a sudden... Well, 1983 was a big year. I'd done Safety in Numbers already, yep. so I'd written that. Mm-hmm. But that was just, oh, let's see if we can write something, really. But then 
Max Gillies came into the picture, who uh, is a comic actor who was very famous for his political impersonations. And and came out of with the Pram Factory. Yeah, in Melbourne. came out of the Pram Factory yeah, in yeah. Melbourne. Uh, I <clears throat> I'd never met him before, but I saw he did a show downstairs at uh, Nimrod, as it was then, Belvoir now, uh, which was very good. And his pianist was Alan John at that stage, but then Alan had other things to do, and Max uh, decided to do a new show at Kinsella's, which was just open upstairs called A Night of National Reconciliation, which was Bob Hawke's phrase, we're going to have a national reconciliation. <laughs> <clears throat> so, and Max, that's the first time Max played Bob Hawke. But he, he had elaborate costumes and, you know, putty noses and wigs and things for his characters. So someone had to do songs in between so he could change. And because Al, Alan was not around, I was hired right. to do that. And I think I was hired because a friend of mine, Patrick Cook, who's a political cartoonist and writer, was one of the writers and he suggested me. So I came on board and I wrote these songs. And because it was such a hit, the ABC picked it up to do a show called The Gillies Report the next year, 84. And we all went as part of the package. So I ended up being a writer on that show. And, and a I'm, performer as well. And know. a performer, yeah. And it was the show that introduced Wendy Harmer to the world. She hadn't, she'd done some stand-up in Melbourne, but she wasn't nationally known. Was Jean Kitson in the cast? Then? No, no, no Jean's Tracy... later. Tracy... Tracy Harvey. Uh, yep, yep. Yep. Um, and there were, you know, other friends in small roles, like Jeff Kelso, for example. But the, I was one of the writers with Patrick Cook, John Clark and Don Watson. So I learned a hell of a lot Absolutely. from those people. I was the wow. newbie by far. That's when Clark said, you know, are you a genius or an amateur? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. What an apprenticeship. Yeah. And so I and I, I took to it, though. You know, I obviously was reasonably good at it. Yeah. When did you discover the form of cabaret? Ah, same year. Really? Yep. I did my first solo cabaret at Pastel's. In '83, Pastels was a club in Sydney. Or? It was a little tiny sort of cafe that put on cabaret shows, and it was in Rose Street at the back of the Theatre Royal, near the stage door, just down there. And I'd played piano for a couple of shows. A friend of mine, Beth Child, did a, a late show called Late Bloomers. <laughs> Good name. Good name. And I accompanied her. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to do a solo show. So I, I did. I think three solo shows there for over the couple of years. A really, you know, the thing with those sort of venues is there has to be a person whose place it is who you associate with that person. It's a bit like Claire's now. Yeah, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Because Claire is there, yep. that centers, that gives the place personality, a okay. very particular one. Una's. Yeah. Well, Una, when Una was around, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, a man named Jonathan Rutherford Best ran the place. It's a great name. I know, the New Zealander. And he was very entrepreneurial. And uh, so I did three shows there. Well, the first one was A Legend in His Own Mind. And I, the, the one I did in 88 was Bicentenaria, which because it was the Bicentenary. Yeah. And they, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to do any old songs I like. So I did some Bette Midler. I did Tom Lehrer, of course. I wrote some as well. And there was a bit of like chatty sort of patter in between. T 
Tell me about reviewing the situation. How do you craft a show like that? Uh, well, I worked on that with Terence O'Connell, yeah. whose idea it was for me to do it. And so Just a reminder, the, the, the show about Lionel the Bart. The show about Lionel Bart. Yeah. Yes, that's a different kind of thing. That's much more of an acting exercise than the sort of thing I was doing at Pastels. Um, well, I mean, you start by reading the biographies and looking at any interviews you can find and all that sort of thing. And if it's a tribute to a particular person, then usually the timeline of their life is a pretty good map. And I found with his work, we found, I should say, um, that a lot of the songs like It's a Fine Life from Oliver and Oliver was one of my great favourite shows as a kid anyway um, they have a great uh, bearing on his uh, early years, he grew up very poor and they knew what it was not to have enough to eat and not to have the rent, you know, all those things so all that fed into that so it was, you know, quite easy and then he became famous and had all these friends and then he lost them all and became a drunk and bankrupt. Yeah. So it has, actually was a really good arc yeah. to just to follow his life story. He wrote pop songs as well, didn't he? He did. He wrote um, Little White Bull for Tommy Steele and he wrote um, famously uh, the, the Cliff Richard hit, um, Living Doll. Oh, right. Oh, wow. yeah. Wow. And the theme from, from Russia With Love, all of which were in my show. Very good, very good. So doing cabaret, there must be some awkward moments that arise every now and then when you're working with a live audience. There's just you and the microphone and a keyboard and not much else to rely on except your rapier wit and charm. Oh, the rapier wit sometimes <laughs> fails you, let me say. Um, for example, okay, my worst moment was I got a gig on, I think it was Hamilton Island or Hayman, might have been Hayman Island. It was a jazz week. I don't know, I'm not a jazz player really, but someone asked me if I would do this week from Wednesday to Wednesday with some other jazz people. One of them was George Washing Machine, the yep. really good jazz violinist and guitarist who's a friend. And I thought, oh, look, George is doing it, you know, why not? And, you know, there was a drummer and, a, you know, we'll have a holiday. That was how it was sold to us. So anyway, we got there and we were playing for breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, you know, cocktail hour, dinner, and then late. We were playing all day because I ran out of things immediately. And we all didn't see the sea or the sun or anything. And then the Sunday was coming up and the entrepreneur said to me, oh, the boys have told me that you do comic songs at the piano. You know, what, what would you like to do that on Sunday for a change from all the jazz? And I could see where they were coming from. They wanted to break. They would have a break. Off yeah, they want to have dinner and get pissed. <laughs> so I said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I, I do that. I, I can do that. So I, on the Saturday, I, when I had a chance, I just worked up some material that I already had. And I thought I will open with this song that I was doing at Kinsella's in the Max Gilly show about Tasmania. And it's a Calypso song like the island, you see. Yep, yep. And it goes, Taz, Tasmania, calls from across the sea. Oi! Taz, Tasmania. And they all, you know, everyone marries their sister and blah, 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 and they've got pointy heads, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Okay. You know, a bit naughty. <laughs> but I thought, oh, you know. So anyway, it was the bar was set up. I hadn't taken any notice of anything else. i just worked on this. And there were, I don't know, 30 people there or something. So I opened with that. And it was like the scene in Producers when springtime for Hitler happens. And the mouths were just open. The mouths were just open. You could hear a pin drop. And then one by one, people got up and left. And 
I got, and I thought, oh, well, they don't, they're jazz people. I don't like this. But I kept going. And eventually there was nobody there. I only got that number out, really. <laughs> Instead of doing, you know, 40 minutes, I did five minutes. So I thought, oh, well, too bad, you know. What's, no matter with, what's the matter with this lot? And I went to bed. And the next morning I got up and we had TVs in our rooms. And I turned on the TV to see what was going on. And they were talking about yesterday's massacre at Port Arthur. No. <laughs> yes. No. Which I didn't know about. And all those people did. Oh, no. <laughs> That's, oh, my God. I know. So that was the experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. I told that story. I did a cabaret show called um, Cabaret Survivor, which was about all the years I'd been doing it, and I told that story, and I don't think people believed me, but that's what happened. That's, uh, yeah. You, yes, you couldn't you couldn't write that. No. Uh, what about touring? You, you've done a bit of touring, I imagine. I mean, certainly around the country, but have you travelled further afield with your work? Well, I have, yes. Um, not so much lately, although I did go to New York, as you know, with Priscilla. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, towards the end of the 70s, I, I did the overseas trip that we always used to do in those days. The gap year. The gap year. Yeah. 18 months, in fact, it was. And uh, um, I went to America first, but I had a friend who I'd actually met on the Jill Perryman show. She was a Canadian girl, a waitress who'd come to Australia and was now back in Canada. And she was also a singer. And her family owned a luxury resort on Vancouver Island, which is an island off the coast of Vancouver. Yep. Um, a place called Campbell River. There was nothing there but their resort. And an eagle sanctuary next door. And then just, you know, woodland. Um, and I was there for nearly nine months because she wanted to do a show in their restaurant. It was a fabulous restaurant. And so, you know, we worked up the stuff. She sang um, Streisand and right. she sang um, uh, <laughs> um, Edith Piaf. You know, I, she had, sang I in, Barbara listens to this. She song. sang in French as well. Right. Oh, I met a waiter there who, who'd been working in, um, in Toronto or something when Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler were in separate clubs on opposite sides of the same road doing their, their act. Wow very early days yeah, yeah. and I think he was working at the Barbara Club and Barbara said to him would you go over the road and tell Miss Streisand that I'm here and I'd like to see her after the show and let's get together so he had to do that that was his you know brush with fame bringing Bet and Barbara together yeah, yeah, yeah. probably for the last time for the last <laughs> and after Canada I went to London and I did a pantomime I music musically directed a panto at the Watford Palace Babes in the Wood because right. the director was somebody I'd worked with in Australia and he knew I was coming and he said oh you want to do this job so was that full of uh, English celebrities or uh, well no <laughs> <laughs> no for once it wasn't the the man who played the pantomime dame Peter John right. which I don't think was his whole name right. um, he wrote pantos that was what he did and he used to have like three or four on every Christmas and he'd be in one of them and he was Dame Pittypat or whatever the name of the character is in that. And he was a bit, who's this person, you know? Who's this Australian person coming in and they don't know what I'm doing? You know, hmm. So he was a bit standoffish. Yeah. And he had a song that had about four 
verses that were all the same musically, but different, obviously, words. And I had a band. I had a little band in the pit that I was in charge of. And about the third or fourth performance in, he jumped from the middle of the second verse to the end of the third verse. And I thought, oh, does he know he's done this? And is he going to then do the first part of the third verse and go to the end of the second verse? Is he going to make up for it or does he not realise? And I was watching him very closely. I thought, I don't think he realises. So I said to the band, follow me. We're going to, you know, go to Dakota early. And we did. And we all finished together and it was nobody knew there was anything wrong. And then after the performance, I bumped into him and he said, did I leave a verse out of that song? And I said, you did actually, but I, I couldn't decide if you knew. And I decided you'd, you hadn't realised that you'd done it. So we followed you. You're marvellous, he said. I don't want any other musical director ever in any of my pantomimes. <laughs> that was nice. Yes, fabulous support. Yeah. Well, look, you've written musicals, you've written special material, you've written gags, you've written songs for cabaret. You've also written the long-form narrative with a, a succession of the novels. Oh, well, that's a while ago, but I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah but that one did Diva and Mardi Gras Murders and It's and, About Your Friend. Yes. So... What were the challenges in, in sitting down and actually writing a novel? Oh, well... Where, where, where do you come up with the concept, the idea that... Oh, well, it's easy if you're writing uh, murder mysteries, which three of them are. Right, so they're a, a formula, formulaic genre. Well, sort of. I mean, yeah. you know what you've got to get to at the end. You've got to find out who did it and why. And you've got to have... And then just litter it with a whole lot of gags? Oh, well, that. But you've also got to have a few sort of other possibilities in there that red herrings that yes that you can eventually discard fortunately for me my main character was very bad at finding out who killed anyone else for whatever reason and just like bumbled into it which is what i was doing as i went through i didn't did you enjoy that process oh yeah i did you got another novel in you well you've ticked off the list um well i don't have an idea for one not really. But they're incredibly popular there, weren't they? Are oh, they well, still, well, still in print? Still no, get... I think, well, you can still get copies of them here and there, but no, they're not in print anymore. I, and they're not online as yet. Might do it one day. Well, I've got them all and they're all signed. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it, they, they all took me about two years. Each one took me two years to write. Wow. What, you know, with all the other work. Yeah, it's a big investment of time. Yeah, to and you have to carry it all in your head. And I found also with... A couple of them where I hadn't made up my mind who, you know, who the killer was until about halfway through. And once I decided, I had to go back and change quite a few things earlier on. So you have to be aware of what you've said already. It's quite a lot to, to, you know, you sort of um, retreat from public life (laughs) a bit when you're doing it. A monastic existence. Yes. And I don't know if I'd be interested in writing a novel now and just having it on a computer screen, yep. there's something about getting something that you wrote in print, in book form particularly. Yes. It's so... You think, oh, my God, look at I, this. I created that. Yeah. yeah. And they've they've made this out of it. Yeah. It's it's pretty good, I must say. It's a good feeling. Worth it. And then you hope for the film rights. Well, someone might still make a mini-series out of them. You never know. You never know. You never know. Now, Sydney Cabaret Festival is coming up. And you're featuring it. It's exciting to see Cabaret back in Sydney and celebrated in the way that it is about to be. 
Yes, well, we can thank Trevor Ashley for that. I mean, he saw that there was a, a gap in the market there. And also a lot of us didn't get into Adelaide this year, right. a lot of the Sydney people. Um, you didn't get in. What, do you have to apply to be part of the program? In Adelaide? Yeah. Oh, you have to everywhere. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah, right. yeah. okay. Right. I think so, yeah. You can't just sort of pay a membership and You can't just up rock and... up, no. All right, okay. <laughs> Say, where's my venue? And then it's up to the um, artistic director to design the program. Yeah. From what? Okay. Yeah. Um, yes, so anyway, Trevor decided to put one on here. I hope it pays off because I hope it's the beginning of a, a run of them, you know. Yeah. And you're uh, presenting a show called No Cabaret, no Cabaret for, for Old, Old Men, Men, which is a fantastic title. Jonathan Biggins and I right. are doing some, I must admit, some of it's, you know, old material that we did at the Tilbury Hotel. But it's great to revisit that stuff, you know. There's oh, yeah. a whole generation that probably have never seen it. There's a whole generation who weren't born when we were doing it, though, you know. <laughs> they won't be saying, oh, not this again. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And we're having a ball going through the stuff. And um, and we're rewriting it. We're looking at it, you know, updating it if necessary. And only using things that, that you know, don't sound as though they were written 30 years ago or right. something. You, you've worked together, so what, how long now? 20 years or something? You've been writing with Jonathan? Well, first time I worked with Jonathan and Drew together was 87. So what's that? That's 30 years. Three Men and a Baby Grand, was it? Uh, no, it was before no, that. Before that, right. Hmm. It was the ABC television show. Oh, okay. Um, Three Men and the Baby Grand was 1990, so that's a long way back yeah. as well. So uh, knowing each other so well, obviously you've written the show, but is there room for improvisation? Do you ever... We don't improvise in the... Scat Wolf... on the... Um, no. During, we, the, during the show? We never improvise in the Wharf Review. Right. But we rewrite it quite often. We rewrite bits and pieces of it to keep it up to date. Yep. I stopped doing the Wharf Review yes. last year. Yeah, yeah. And I'm writing again this year, but not in it. Right. And we'll see about next year, because it might be the last one. Oh, do you miss being in it? I mean, obviously, it's a huge task, because, you know, I've spoken to Jonathan on, on stages, and he says the day after you finish, you start writing the next one. Yes, it, it it's a bit relentless. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. And also, there you know, there are four people in it, and there are no covers, and it's sold out, which is wonderful, but... You drag yourself out of bed if you've got the flu and you go in and do it and just, oh, I just don't want any more of that in my life. Well, you know you know how the Rolling Stones feel. Oh, well, do I? <laughs> Not financially. I know how they feel health-wise. Oh, well, it'll be, we're, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly very much looking forward to it. I know a lot of people are looking forward to seeing... Um, no the, Cabaret. Oh, yeah. Yeah, No Cabaret for Old Men. Oh, well, I hope they enjoy it, yeah. yeah. Some of that... Matilbury material, which was... It's not political, by the way. There's a bit of political stuff in No Cabaret for Old Men, but it's not all that. A lot of it's just silly. Yeah. And um, quite theatrical and about theatre. Um, writing, TV, cabaret, film, stage, radio, is there a medium that you particularly enjoy? Oh, stage. you've done it all. I, I like stage. Yeah. Yeah. Although I made a short film last year, um, uh, just as an actor... Uh, called um... <laughs> it's called that yes what is it called I've had so many bloody names that changed all the time working titles anyway with Genevieve Lemon that was fun yeah yeah I want to be a film actor now well you never know you never know I you? can tear up you can tear up I just have to look at the contract and then <laughs> make you tear up <laughs> 
Phil Scott, thank you. You're a. I, I, I dare to say you're you're a national treasure. Oh, okay. Well, I'm certainly yeah. buried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and thanks for talking to stages. Um, it's always great to catch up with you and. Um, oh, you share, and, and and I've learned so much about you today. I'm sure a lot of um, my listeners, our listeners, mm-hmm. certainly have too. Have you had a good time? Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, great. All right. Um, well, cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. My pleasure. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka and Spotify. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers and I'll catch you next time on Stages.